I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the Government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. You're joking. Not another one? Hello and welcome to another episode of Election Weekly, a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Laura Hood. We took a break last week when the election campaign was suspended following the devastating events in Manchester. This is our last episode before polling day, which is now just a week away. We'll be taking a broad look at the whole election campaign and later on we'll be zoning in on the developments in Scotland. I've asked Paul Whiteley from the University of Essex to join me this week to pick over the latest developments in the campaign. We're recording this podcast on Thursday, the morning after a blistering TV debate unfolded between seven party leaders, the notable exception being Theresa May, who did not turn up to represent the Conservatives and was roundly criticised for failing to show. Good leaders don't run away from a debate. and Theresa May undoubtedly should be here. Let's begin with that debate, Paul. How serious a mistake was it for May not to turn up to this? The elephant in the room was very much Theresa May not being there. And the audience didn't like it. It gave her opponents something to refer to, and Leanne Wood and Tim Farron both referred to it to to applause. I think in the context where the polls are changing rapidly, and it's quite clear that Labour is catching up with the Conservatives in comparison with the start of the campaign, it was a serious mistake not to be there. You know, I think something's happened in Britain since 2010 when we first had the big leader interviews between um, the three major party leaders. Since then, the public now expect their leaders to come and talk to them on TV. And the old approach, which was leaders, incumbent leaders would tend to avoid this, is no longer possible now. It was obviously uh, a great opportunity for the other party leaders to attack the Conservatives over this. But there did seem to be quite genuine outrage, particularly on the part of of Tim Farron and Caroline Lucas of of the Green Party, that she'd called this election and hadn't turned up to debate the issues. Yes. And I don't think it was faux. I mean, there was an element of that, pretended outrage and all that. But it was more than that. There was a feeling that, which speaks to a wider concern about Theresa May's leadership is that she's not very good with people, not very good at shaking hands and kissing babies and all this kind of campaigning. And in the early part of the election campaign was very protected by her minders so that we only saw her in the context of admiring groups of conservative supporters. Now, latterly, she's opened up a little bit and knocked on some doors and talked to people. But her campaign skills are not good. David Cameron, it should be said, was much better at this. And it has been a real problem for her because, of course, the focus of the entire campaign has been on the prime minister and the argument about Brexit. And the focus group work that the Conservatives were doing confirmed that this was a strong argument for them. And when people made comparisons with her and Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the comparisons were much more favorable to her. So the campaign strategy was to go with a big emphasis on her. Now, if she doesn't do well in front of the public, and above all, doesn't turn up, it really torpedoes this strategy. And as we know, she's been accused of wobbling 
So it's undermined the central core of the Conservative campaign, which is to say strong and stable leadership. We're certainly hearing less and less of that phrase as the campaign goes on. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So this started off um, at the beginning of this election. We we were talking about it being an absolute done deal for the Conservatives and um, it really just being a question of the size of their majority. Are we still talking about um, a Conservative win but maybe we're just a smaller majority than originally thought? Or are we, are we generally talking about um, the Conservatives being in, in real trouble? Well, the polls are all over the place. <laughs> There's one poll gives the Conservatives a 12-point lead, and the latest YouGov poll, I think it's 3% lead or 2% lead. So they're all over the place. But this is indicative of something we found when looking at polls actually over time, which is that, Polls tend to be much more volatile when people are changing their minds. And this is what's happening. People are shifting from conservatives to labor and shifting in other directions as well. So you see differences in the polls being magnified by that phenomena. Because if somebody's shifting their position on this in a day or two, and you interview them on Tuesday and interview them again on Thursday or somebody else interviews them on Thursday, you you could see a shift. That said, the thing we also know is that the Conservatives are ahead on all of the polls. There's differences between them, but they're ahead. So it looks to me as though the outcome is going to be a comfortable Conservative win, but certainly not a landslide. And we shall see in the next few days whether it slims down to the point of producing a hung parliament, which is one of the predictions from a model that the YouGov people have been working on. About that YouGov poll, that has really sort of uh, raised quite a lot of eyebrows uh, since it, it came out. Could you just explain to us how that methodology works and what, how they've sort of come up with something that's so different? Yeah. Normally what happens is pollsters interview about a 1,000, 1,500 people at random across the country, and they work hard to make sure that the samples they get are a random sample of the country. And then when they've got a vote intention figure, you can translate it into seats by saying, well, it looks as though the Conservatives are 5% ahead of Labour, so let's translate that into seats, and this is what we get. There's some difficulties with that approach. So what YouGov have done is, first of all, pooled pretty much all the surveys they're doing, and they're doing regular surveys every day, thousands of cases, bundle them all together so you get many thousands of cases, draw on data from census sources and others, other sources to describe the characteristics of constituencies, put it all together in a big model and come up with a prediction, not a simple national prediction, but a prediction constituency by constituency. So it's a more sophisticated approach and uses a lot of data, which makes it particularly interesting. And there's some mathematical modeling underpinning it um, designed to try to deal with the real variations that are occur across the country. You know, Scotland's very different from the Northeast, and that's very different from the Southeast and London and so on. Potentially, it could be more accurate. The only problem is some of these big data approaches in 2015 didn't work very well. 
Right. <laughs> so we're not sure. The jury is out. So is it, is it a bit of an is, experimental uh, yes, approach? Yes, it's a bit of an experimental methodology. And of course, from YouGov's point of view, if they succeed, they will be the, the great winners from this. After 2015, that's maybe a bit of a sort of risky uh, strategy. Can we trust the polls in in 2017? Well, you know, it's interesting, but in the the polls, they're a small part of um, the wider market research industry, which is all about, you know, selling products and advertising and so on. Now, big data, as it's called, is increasingly a feature of market research. And the claim is, with some justification, that you can forecast people's buying habits much better than was the case in the past. And this is an attempt to apply the same approach to polling. So I think it's to be welcomed methodologically, but the jury is out until June the 9th as to whether it did work. Just going back to the debate last night, uh, Caroline Lucas was particularly uh, vocal and and was quite confrontational with uh, Amber Rudd. What did you make of her performance? Well, I think she had a good night. She was acerbic, critical and articulate. And I think the the big loser was Paul Nuttall, who didn't make a very good case and, you know, doesn't compare very well with uh, Nigel Farage when it comes to these kinds of set pieces. Um, Amber Rudd did the best she could to defend their position. And I think the one criticism one can make is that she was making attacks on Jeremy Corbyn, which he didn't respond to. And that, in the end, I think damages the conservative case looks personal it looks nasty and a lot of people don't like it she so, did she did certainly keep on repeating this line about his money tree and yeah uh, funnily enough i'm reminded of the remain campaign in the brexit referendum they had a good case when it came to the issue of the risks of leaving the european union there's no question they had a good case and our modeling shows that it did resonate with the public but boy did they overdo it that was their problem And I think the Conservatives, when looking at the um, data from polls and indeed focus groups, were right to compare and contrast Theresa May with Jeremy Corbyn, but they've overdone it. Mm. And uh, attacking him and demonising him is a mistake because actually he comes across to the public as a sort of grandfathery figure, somebody who can get the statistics wrong but, you know, by and large, is a passionate advocate of his position. So I think they've gone overboard on this. And it does reflect the Lytton Crosby school of campaigning. You know, campaigning in Australia is rough. And he's brought some of that culture over. And some of it can be effective. But if you overdo it, it can be counterproductive. And I think they've overdone it a little bit. We don't like it to get too nasty. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, Paul Nuttall did not have a good night last night. One of the stories of the election seems to be the, the demise of UKIP. Do you think that that is what we're seeing here? And how much of that is to be blamed on Nuttall himself as a leader? Well, you know, if you like, UKIP have had a perfect storm over the last year since the Brexit referendum. They've lost their main issue, um, you know, the job done argument. That resonates with the public. 
Secondly, they've lost a charismatic leader because Nigel Farage was charismatic, whether you agreed or disagreed with him, in a way that Paul Nuttall is not. And then to make matters worse, they've been fighting with each other and did very badly in the local election. So he's got a tough job to try to deal with that. And it means that their vote share, which in 2015 was close to 13%, is now down at 4 5%. But I don't think it's a knockout blow. And the reason is, there's a constituency for what they're arguing in Britain, the people who are left behind, the people who are not very educated, the people who feel resentment about governments not listening to them, people who feel threatened by immigration, even if it's not something that occurs in their area. And that constituency still exists. It exists across Europe. So we are one week away from polling day. And would you care to make any predictions about what we're going to see? Because the polls are shifting very, you know, even as we speak. But right now, suppose the election, I'll do it this way. Suppose the election was today, then I think the Conservatives would return with a working majority, not a landslide, but with a working majority. Whether that continues till next Thursday, we shall have to see. Great. Paul Whiteley, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You're welcome. So, of course, we shouldn't forget that the Scottish National Party has 54 seats in the Westminster Parliament, making it the third biggest party. Earlier this year, at the height of Labour's infighting woes, it even made a cheeky bid to be recognised as the official opposition. I've asked Craig McAngus from the University of Aberdeen to take us through what's been happening in Scotland in 2017 after what was a very important year in the 2015 general election. Craig, the SNP published its manifesto after a delay this week. What, for a start, were the headline messages about the two really important issues of the day, those being Brexit and the possibility of a second independence referendum in Scotland? Well, the SNP has has seen Brexit as an opportunity to open up the issue of independence again. Now, we've got to go back to 2016 at the Scottish parliamentary elections where in the SNP's manifesto, it stated that if Scotland was to be removed from the European Union against its will, and Scotland voted 62% to remain in the EU, that would potentially be grounds to hold a second independence referendum. Now, we're really unclear as to when the SNP really wants to have this referendum, but the spectre of the referendum is, is certainly is certainly there. Why do you suppose they've um, decided to sort of be a bit vaguer about the date? Well, I think two things really, and these are these two things are obviously uh, really intimately linked. Again, the first one is that the polls aren't really showing any great shift towards independence in Scotland. the The result in twenty fourteen at the first independence referendum was forty five voting to leave the UK and 55% uh, voting to remain within the UK. And I think if we look beyond that, what the SNP I think we're hoping for or we're thinking might happen was that after uh, the result of the EU referendum came in and the idea that Scotland was to be removed from the EU against its democratic will, that that would provide some sort of spur um, for pro-EU pro-UK people to move towards a, a, a pro-yes camp. Um, but there seems to be some problems with that. 
is this this sort of muddling of of Brexit and and the um, and Indy Ref two? Is that part of the wider electoral picture in Scotland? The Conservatives have been mounting a stronger challenge there than they have for some time. What what's behind that, and how might might it play out in terms of uh, seats won in this Westminster election? Well, one of the other sort of backstories to, to to all of this is there were very few voices in Scotland that thought that the referendum shouldn't happen. There was general excitement that the question was getting put to the people. Now there is a much greater divide on the very idea that a referendum should even be held at all because there are many voices in Scotland who believe that the question was answered in 2014 and this whole idea, oh, well, you know, circumstances have changed, etc., is just a way for the SNP to try and manoeuvre a new referendum and, and, and it's a way for them to act in an opportunistic way. What the Conservatives have done is they've really understood that the, the political battleground in Scotland that has opened up since the independence referendum and the 2015 election showed this, that pro-yes people were voting for the SNP and pro-UK people on the whole, were voting for someone else. So the Conservatives sort of said, well, the Labour Party are really weak, the Lib Dems are really nowhere. We can be basically the, the mirror image of the SNP. And they've, they've, they've run on that ticket and, and, and they've been quite successful. So you'll not thank me for asking, but do you predict a, a growth in seats for the Conservatives against the SNP? Yeah, I think they will win some seats. Some of the most pessimistic polls for the SNP have had the SNP in the high 30s, but it's looking like the SNP may well, on the day, probably achieve somewhere between sort of 40 and 42, 43% of the vote. That's that's where the polls are just now. Obviously, we, we don't know until the day. So the SNP are victims of their own success in a sense that if they come away with 50 seats, they're still doing incredibly well, just because they did very, very, very well against uh, against everyone else in, in, in 2015. Looking yeah. at the Conservatives, high 20%, 25% to 30% in that sort of range is looking like maybe enough to get them seven, eight, nine seats. Right. Um, they're looking fairly strong in, in, in the borders, for example. Um, they could maybe pick up a seat in Edinburgh and in, in Aberdeenshire, potentially Murray and, 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 and maybe in Perthshire they could do quite well. And where does that leave Labour in Scotland? In great difficulty. It's it's very difficult to see where Labour can go beyond potentially holding on to uh, the one seat that they have in Edinburgh South. The problem that Labour have is that they've sort of fallen between two stools. On the one hand, they are not seen as strong enough and credible enough uh, with regards to defending the union on the pro-UK side of things, which is why the Conservatives have been pushing them out in that in that part of the political divide. And then on the pro-independence side, the SNP have been very, very uh, effective at, at sort of locking out the centre-left vote in Scotland. So the, the, beyond the seat that they hold, it would be, I'd be very, very surprised if Labour were able to pick up any extra seats. So basically, Labour will more than likely remain in the political wilderness in Scotland. Craig McAngus, thanks very much for joining us today. No problem, thank you. So there we have it. We started this election campaign thinking there was only one outcome worth predicting. Now, with days to go, the picture is significantly less clear. We hope this podcast series has been helpful as you decide who deserves your vote on the 8th of June. We'll be back again on the 9th of June to discuss the results of the 2017 general election. Join us then to find out who will be at the helm of the good ship United Kingdom as it heads into Brexit and beyond. Thanks again to Paul Whiteley from the University of Essex 
and Craig McCangus from Aberdeen. A big thanks too to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of Election Weekly was produced by Annabelle Bly and our theme tune is by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Android or swing around Conversation Towers in London where we just play it on a loop. I'm Laura Hood, Politics Editor at The Conversation UK. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye.